Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Judd Hollander. Judd E. Hollander, MD, is a Senior Vice President of Healthcare Delivery Innovation at TJU and Associate Dean for Strategic Health Initiatives at Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University and Professor of Emergency Medicine. He graduated from New York University Medical School in 1986, completed the Eternal Medicine Residency at Barnes Hospital in 1989, and an Emergency Medicine Residency at Jacoby Hospital in 1992. His research interests include innovative care delivery models, including telemedicine, risk stratification of patients with potential cardiovascular disease, cocaine-associated cardiovascular complications, and laceration and wound management. Dr. Hollander has published over 600 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and editorials on these topics and other topics. Dr. Hollander was the president for, of the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, SAM, chaired the SAM Program Committee and Emergency Medicine Foundation Scientific Review Committee, was deputy editor for the Annals of Emergency Medicine, and co-chaired the National Quality Forum Committee to create a framework to support and measure development for telehealth. Dr. Hollander was awarded the ACEP Award for Outstanding Research in 2001, the Hal Jane SAM Academic Excellence Award in 2003, and the SAM Leadership Award in 2011. Dr. Judd Hollander, Judd, welcome to the show. Well, thanks guys, nice, nice to meet you. It's fantastic meeting you as well. I'm, I'm super excited for the conversation today. You know, you've accomplished a ton over your career. Uh, just a few examples from the bio, you know, president of the SAM, a distinguished ER doctor and research director, and you've been a mentor to hundreds, if not thousands of students, uh, and were really instrumental in developing uh, and implementing Jefferson Health's uh, telehealth and virtual rounding initiative called Jeff Connect. So really just curious off the top, you know, how did you get into this wonderful world of digital health and innovation? Well, a little bit of luck, evolution, coincidence. You, you know, they, they say basically if you're around long enough and you go to the right places, you'll get lucky, right? And so that's kind of what happened. M most of my career, I was an emergency medicine clinical researcher. I ran large clinical research programs. And at some point it dawned on me that the skill set in research, right? It, it, interviewing people, learning from them, collecting data, analyzing data is really the same skill set that you get in business. And so I took a sabbatical and went and started looking at different ways to deliver healthcare, be they urgent care centers and other things, and not actually even connected care or telemedicine at, at that point in time. And at some point decided to make a career shift and got really lucky in that there was a new supervisionary CEO and a dean at Jefferson. So the CEO, Steve Clasco, wonderful guy, great vision. And the dean, Mark Tikachinsky, also a wonderful guy, great vision. And they took a gamble on a dude that knew how to do research and said, we'll let you come in here and grow out some of these programs and let's see how it goes. And so I had put together a business plan and didn't necessarily intend to do anything you know, very specific with it. But as an example, there were a group of us. And the example that I gave the dean and the CEO was around telemedicine and how we could work as a Venn diagram. And it turns out telemedicine was in their vision for the future and pretty much went from a hypothetical thing on a business plan to why don't you guys all come here and run this for us? So, uh, you know, a little bit of luck. And uh, Dr. Hollander, I remember reading an interview that you did and you mentioned Dr. Classical 
was a visionary leader who really influenced you diving into telehealth. I mean, it sounded like you came in with that as part of your, your plan, but was there anything in particular that Dr. Costco did or said that, that shaped your views on telehealth going forward? Well, I, I think the largest thing was it was about the patient and not about the healthcare system. It wasn't about how are we going to make money today and tomorrow, but it was about how are we going to deliver care 5, 10, 15 years from now. And, and it was the assumption that consumerism would drive that rather than the payers. And, and so I think in that, it's not hard to make the blockbuster to Netflix analogy. It's not hard to talk about, you know, the ATM machines and now it's, you know, banking on your iPhone. It's not hard to talk about Amazon now. It was actually pretty hard to talk about those things six or seven years ago, but it was really his vision seeing that all of these other areas outside of health moved away from bricks and mortar and sooner or later, health was going to do that too. And really, if this was Judd in the back room with the same vision, it wouldn't have happened. But when it's the CEO and leader and the board that say, let's do this, and we know we're going to lose money on it right now, then you have a nice long leash to grow out great, great programs. And so I think it was both his vision and his support and a willingness to say, yeah, we're not going to make a buck on this right now, but we know this is the future. So let's invest in it and get going. I think that's incredible because it sounds like when, when the leader of the organization has that level of conviction and that vision, it probably gave you permission to maybe fail along the way and know that you still have an opportunity to get back on the horse and, and keep marching to the future. Oh, we never failed. No, I'm just kidding. No. Uh, 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 it doesn't uh, happen uh, in healthcare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who, who would fail in healthcare? This is easy. Healthcare is easy. Um, but yeah, it, it's, yeah, that's exactly right. And so, you know, we did something that other places didn't do back then and don't even do now is we kind of went all in at once. We, if we had guessed that where would we go, we would have gone to primary care, right? Everything in the world is about primary care. Primary care were our latest adopters. Primary care physicians, primary care providers, they like the face-to-face -face contact with the patient. They don't want to change. That's their comfort level, right? So we, you know, again, we got lucky because we said this is going to be the future and everybody needs to learn how to do it. And then it turns out the places that grew it out fastest were ENT and urology and some of the surgical subspecialties. And if we sat in a strategic meeting and said, where would we go first? Urology wouldn't have been on that list, mm -hmm. yeah, you know? And so the, the fact that we asked every department to figure out how are you gonna do this and how are you gonna make it so any patient who wants it can have a telemedicine visit uh, allowed us to get lucky and grow it out in directions that we would not have been smart enough to anticipate. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I really appreciate the fact that you're looking to the team to collaborate on these things, because I know from your background, you know, you're quite passionate and, and a lot of your research is centered around cardiovascular activities. And so you'd think, you know, cardiac would be a kind of natural fit, but then going to the rest of the team and really understanding, you know, what's important to them and how would they leverage the, the technology. One thing that really struck me uh, from doing the research in, in, into your background is you know, in healthcare, often there are these buzzwords kind of thrown around. And something that I really appreciate about you is your, your take on almost Occam's razor, where 
often the, the you know, simplest explanation is the, the best explanation. And one of the things that I've heard in an interview that you said is, you know, you simply ask others what's easiest for the patient. Could you unpack that a little bit? And what does that exactly mean to you from a digital standpoint? Well, I, I think the starting at the 10,000 foot level, uh, you know, I, I don't know, most people who know me wouldn't consider me a person full of humility. They'd probably think the opposite. But but in fact, as I, as I often like to say, for someone who often talks over people, I'm a pretty good listener. And, and most of the ideas that I've gotten credit for in my life, in fact, maybe all of them weren't my idea, but, but they were taking something I heard somewhere else and, and being able to unpack it and execute on it when other people may have had an idea and not figured out how to go forward. So at the end of the day, I, I, I think the world's about three things. It's about business. There has to be a business model for things. And the way you think in business is the way you think in your home, right? It's can you afford to add this addition to your house? It's how are we going to do, you know, how am I going to pay off the credit card? Can I afford to buy this? There is some economics in everything. So you need to understand how that is and you need to understand who you're selling it for. Then there's an element of psychology. And so you have to figure out where do you need to apply that acumen? Now, I need the patient to want to do it if it's going to be a patient-oriented solution. So I need to know what do they want to do? But I also know in our system, I didn't at the time, that 75% of the patient decision is driven by the provider. So I need the provider to know, to, to buy into this. So I need, the, I need to know what the patient wants and I need to make it easy enough for the provider to convince, not even convince, to just suggest to the patient. And since it's what the patient wants, they'll do it. But if I can't get the provider to say, your next visit's gonna be on telemedicine, it's never gonna be on telemedicine because the patient's never gonna ask. And then the last part is marketing and salesmanship. How do you convince people to try it? And, and I think if you understand there's an economic model that makes it work, it's what people want, give them what they want, and then tell them why they want it, or at least explain why they may want it, mm -hmm. you, you can go forward. And I, and I think the same was true in, in, in the research world. You know, you're deciding it's an important problem to solve. Well, who gets to define it as an important problem? It, it's got to be the person who's going to fund it, the business, and the end user who's going to use it to make it worthwhile. And, and I don't think digital health connected care telemedicine is any different than that. And frankly, that's the same as the rest of your life, I think. I, I love that. And Dr. Hollander, I wanted to go back a little bit and, and unpack something uh, you mentioned. Um, one of the really exciting and unique things about Jeff Connect, as you said, is that you didn't do it as a pilot, right? You, from day one, you went all in. It's an operational thing. We're going to provide it to urology and everyone else. Um, but as you know, better than we do, health systems often like to, let's call it quote unquote, pilot new innovations. But, you know, we've seen that result in maybe slow progress. Maybe it's even doomed from day one because the pilot isn't structurally set up for success in the first place. Is there a reason why um, it made sense for Jeff to connect to go enterprise from day one? And in general, like, do you think there are scenarios where it makes more sense to go all in from day one as opposed to a pilot for a new innovation? Well, so I think it depends on how much you believe in it. I, I think by virtue of, I, I mean, Alan, when he was, you know, given my bio, knew that I chaired the SAM program committee. If you submitted an abstract when I was program committee chair and you said, this is pilot data, you pretty much weren't getting accepted to the meeting because 
what that really means is you did a resident project, which wasn't very well done. You couldn't enroll people and you didn't get enough data to make it useful. So you called it a pilot project. So a lot of times pilots are failed big projects. So a designed pilot is something different where you're looking to see if it works. But you know what, if you're gonna grow out telemedicine and you need to figure out how to train the doctors and you need to figure out how to get it incorporated into the IT system and you need to get patients on board, that's a boatload of work. That's a ton of work for 10 people. It's not that much more work for 50 people. And so we've always approached it like, how would we do this at scale? And then how do we learn? So we, we started, and when we first rolled out, Jefferson's an interesting place, if you know anything about Jefferson. When I came there in 2014, we were a three hospital system. Now we're 18. And we've added them in chunks of two, three, or four along the time, which means I've had the unique experience, we'll call it a good experience, maybe not every day, uh, on rolling out telemedicine again and again and again to groups of people from new health systems that really didn't do telemedicine before. And so when we first did it, there are five, 600 docs. We had 20 sessions. We put 20 or 30 people in a room at a time. We you know, got them up on the platform. We got all their information loaded. They put in their pictures, their bios. Um, we showed them how to use it. They did a couple practice tests. Two hours later, they were trained and the next group came in. That might not have been the most efficient way, but it was the easiest way to get everybody trained on something nobody knew for us at the time. Well, when we added another health system, now the people that work doing the training didn't live that close to that area. So doing 20 sessions, that's a hassle. So we ended up developing remote training. And, and so, you know, might be done like we're doing this podcast over, you know, a video chat. But then ultimately, when COVID hit, and we had done this by the time COVID hit, we had learned how to train people by videos. So it could be online modules. And so we actually trained a 1000 people in a week, the week COVID hit the Philly region. And the first thing, we had the video modules trained for people doing scheduled visits which is the majority of our health system. But we had a small group of 15 or 20 people that did on-demand visits, direct-to-consumer on-demand visits. And that volume went from 20 a day to 300 a day. And we needed more people trained um, to do that. So the first thing we did is we said, remote training worked better than in-person training. Let's rent out a film studio and go do the film so we could train up other people. And we had like cardiologists and GI docs willing to jump on the on-demand platform and help out early in COVID because no one was coming to their offices and we're able to train them. So I think that if you think about what's scalable and durable and build for that, it doesn't take you that much more work compared to a pilot program. No, it's a great point because you've basically put on the work to build out the infrastructure for the initiative and then just enrolling or, or inviting more patients is just a little bit more work, but the bulk of the work was done up front. So I think that's, that's a really great point. You, you mentioned just now the explosion of, of telehealth use and, and Jeff Connect during COVID. Um, and I think, um, you know, Alan found data that Jeff Connect went from maybe 10% of patient interactions at Jefferson to well over 90% at some point during the pandemic. That's a huge amount of growth. Um, probably a lot of logistical hurdles along the way. Um, just wondering, what would you say were the biggest hurdles you had to overcome to kind of basically support that growth almost overnight? So um, I'm not sure this would be the same for everybody else, but 
it was the economics around licensing. Hmm. We, 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 staying somewhat vendor neutral and not giving the names, we had you know, a license to do X number of calls and we were doing 20 X number hmm. of calls. And, you know, the company at the time could have said, yeah, we'll give you 20 X. It's COVID, you know, let's be nice. But they, you know, wanted to increase the rates. We were at that time planning on swapping out the video, the one I was talking about for another one, which we thought would work better for us down the road. And, you know, you guys run a tech company, right? So, you know, what are the likelihoods of moving up your integration by 11 weeks in the middle of a pandemic? And we did that. And God bless everybody involved in it. My tech team, you, you know, I, I may not be exactly right on this, but they basically didn't sleep for 11 days. Wow. And they did rotate out for two or three hours of rest at times. And we accelerated with the help of our corporate partners on the other side, the integration of a new video module into our EMR um, and got it done in 11 days, which allowed us to both save money, be more efficient and provide a better provider and patient experience. And, and we had go no-go decisions with four corporate vice presidents on the phone at 1 a.m. Wow. And, and now because we couldn't do all the testing you normally do, we had to build a toggle switch so that if the new system didn't work, we could shut it off, go back to the old system and, 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 and buy the increase in licenses. So it, it was, you know, I think everybody realizing that this was a game-changing pandemic at that point in time and everybody doing everything they could do and believing that one day it was going to end so you could do this for 11 straight days. Um, nobody thought we'd be doing this for 11 straight years or whatever it'll turn out to be. We, we, we had the devotion, we're able to make it work. And so I, the biggest challenge was clearly that, was scaling up and, and, and having to launch tech solutions without the appropriate testing and building you know, the release valve in case it didn't work. Yeah, no, that, that is absolutely incredible. I think I even saw on your Twitter, like a, a photo of a couch being converted into a bed in your <laughs> office. And that's, you know, like it, 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 you had to do what you had to do kind of thing. Um, just actually kind of speaking on that, another really interesting tweet that I saw. Let me, uh, let me just tell him, but I just want to yeah. say publicly, you should avoid Alan because he finds more <laughs> dirt on the web from you than anybody else I've ever met. <laughs> Or, or just don't let dirt uh, surface up on the internet. Well, that, that's another solution too. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of, you know, some of the dirt on, on your Twitter uh, back in 2020, this is not dirt at all. This is actually amazing. Um, I, I saw a tweet from you basically sharing how the velocity of calls using Jeff Connect from patients was sort of an early indicator on the declining COVID rates that you could see. Uh, and so I, I was curious, do you think this, this insight still holds true today or... Oh, unbelievable. Uh, I am like such a firm believer of that. And it's funny you ask now, right? Because we're just getting over the Omicron surge. And, and so I'll say two Saturdays ago, I sent an email to, you know, my bosses at Jefferson as hospital rates were going through the roof. And I said, good news, we dropped 70% in our phone calls in the last week. Wow. And everybody had like fingers crossed. And we are now on Jeff Connect back to baseline wow. in urgent care. 
were below baseline. And I mentioned I ran the urgent care centers too, I think when we were talking and, and we went from 40 to 60 patients a day to 120 patients a day. Talk about tapping out a bricks and mortar place. It's brutal. And we are now back to below our baseline volumes there. And for five or six days in a row, our hospital volumes have fallen significantly and we're probably down about 30%. So not only do we get to see the up, but we get to give people hope that the down is coming soon too. No, that's awesome. I, I had a follow-up, but you, you pretty much did answer it, but I was curious, you know, do you think other health systems can use telemedicine visit data to kind of evaluate or predict incident rates? It sounds like yes is the answer. Well, so I think it depends how you do it. So I'm not sure my urology visits would have shown this, mm. but it's because we have an on-demand program where people are calling in and because we coordinate COVID testing through that on-demand program, we anybody who starts getting COVID exposures, you know, and this is an era before rapid tests are widely available, would call us to do that. Whether or not this will work three months from now, if rapid tests are widely available, I, I don't know. People may just go get the tests and we may not see the impact, or we may see, uh, you know, just not as sharp a curve up and down. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And Dr. Hollander, um, you know, you've obviously been very involved, not only in telemedicine at Jefferson, but in paving the way more broadly across the country. So you, you know, in 2017, you co-chaired the National Quality Forum Committee to create a framework to um, better support measurement development for telehealth. And um, for, folks who, for folks who haven't seen it, um, in the report, your committee identified six key areas to measure for telehealth performance, travel, timeliness of care, actionable information, added value of telehealth um, to providers, evidence-based best practices, patient empowerment, care coordination. Now that was before COVID. Telemedicine has exploded during COVID. You have way more data, way more experience now. I was wondering, you know, if your committee was to meet again today, do you think you'd be recommending any different measures? Would you change anything? So, so the items you, you just named are, are all important. I think they were important pre and during and post COVID, uh, but there's four actually domains that I, I would like to highlight that are, are maybe more important that those six things fit into, which, which are access as a domain, cost and finances, experience and effectiveness. And, and, and so the way you worded the question was great. It turns out to be a softball and you didn't know it because there's been multiple other national quality forum and other groups getting together to do different frameworks for telemedicine. And, and the four things I just named still fit into all of them that many of the groups have struggled with, but have added a fifth equity. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't argue that equity is not important. Equity is clearly hugely important. I just think it's a sub piece of access and a sub piece of cost and a sub piece of experience and a sub piece of effectiveness. So it, so it fits within that. The, the, Josh, the things that you named, the, the one that I would say the most about is actionable information because I hear something that just, it, it drives me insane every time I hear it when it talks about the diagnostic accuracy of telemedicine. Mm -hmm. And there is no diagnostic mm -hmm. accuracy of telemedicine or an office visit. Right, you go see your primary care provider, and what do they do? They order a bunch of labs, an EKG, a test, an X-ray. The office visit, they didn't diagnose you. The composite of the care diagnoses mm -hmm. you. So a fail is if you go see your primary care doc and they miss the fact that you need a CAT scan to diagnose appendicitis. 
that's the same fail in telemedicine, but don't expect me at the end of a 10 minute video visit to have your diagnosis right. Just expect me to do the right actionable next step. And so that's one of the things that kills me when I hear diagnose, diagnostic ac accuracy, because it's really about actionable information. The, the other important point to highlight in this is that comparisons are often made between telemedicine and a visit that happens in person. And that's a horrible comparison. And, and this is real data, and we've published this in the New England Journal Catalyst. There, there's, if you're doing an in-person visit, there's a 25 or 30% chance your appointment tomorrow, you don't go to. You either cancel or you're a no-show. If you have a telemedicine visit tomorrow, that's only about a 14% chance you miss that visit. So even if telemedicine is not as good, but is nearly as good as an in-person visit, it's way better than you not showing up. So the right comparison is a telemedicine visit compared to your best alternative, which 25% of the time is nothing. So yeah, I mean, if you, if you just compare it to the gold standard when everybody shows up, that, that might be different. It might not be. And in some areas, but in some areas it likely is, and in some areas it's likely not. Yeah, I think to your point, I, I don't get why I think sometimes we're some folks are too obsessed with one size fits all medicine. I mean, to your point, there are certain interventions or, or tools like telehealth that are going to be more appropriate or less appropriate depending on the situation. And I think it's about how do we get the, the most appropriate form of care or modality to the right patient at the right time? And, and maybe that's we can argue about how do we get closer to that, but. I think it would be strange to think that telehealth wouldn't be useful, more useful or more convenient than an in-person visit in every situation. I think that would be strange to expect that. So I think to your point, we have to be practical about it and we can, you know, in some ways we can't be overly academic about it. Right. Uh, so I think that's completely fair. You know, there's been an explosion now of um, patient facing innovations in digital health beyond, you know, telemedicine now and probably COVID helped accelerate that. So, you know, there's digital patient engagement. So for example, maybe engaging patients digitally, pre and post surgery, monitoring symptoms, post-op, et cetera. We've seen lots of chat bots exploding, you know, maybe triaging service on your hospital website and probably many others that, that you're looking at. What are you most excited about as a health system innovation leader going forward? I think that, well, that's a really tough question. I, I think I'm most excited about doing what patients want to have happen. And I think in the end, that, that's what needs to happen. Where health system is broken, besides staffing and the COVID workforce challenges right now, is that at the end of the day, it's all driven by the payers and insurance companies and reimbursement. And so I'm excited to get to a point where it's driven by the patients. Like it is insane to me, and this is one of my rants, and this Alan's probably been on Twitter too, is you take 15,000 bucks from an employee, right? Or you, the employer and the employee combine to pay 15,000 bucks for their family to have health insurance. And then the payer doesn't pay for it. Why are they called the payer if they don't pay for it? You, you know, they're the taker. They're taking the money, but they're not giving anything back. And, and so it, it seems to me that we have to get to a marketplace where the patients could shop for the services they want. Letting the employers shop for the best rate for an insurance company that doesn't give the patients what they want isn't a, a, an appropriate market 
in, in the United States. The employees are just stuck with whatever the employer provides. It'd be one thing if they gave you five different options with different insurance companies and made the insurance companies compete on care. But, but I think we need to get to a point, and we might, because there's enough you, you know, non-payer you, you know, providers out there that will open up access to care. It's not clear to me there's enough employers who, who will allow that. But, but I look forward to seeing disruptive payment models driven by disruptive technology to provide more patient-focused care. It's funny you mentioned that because it, it reminds me a lot of what we deal with um, up here. So I, I don't actually, I don't know, Judd, if you, you knew that. So Alan and I are actually based off Toronto. So we're in the Canadian publicly funded healthcare system. And I can tell you, even though um, everyone here as a healthcare provider is well-intentioned, we're very much, you know, focused on the patient experience and the outcome, but because of the global, the global budget model, um, let's say hospitals are under here, um, even if we have an intervention that, you know, reduces readmissions or complications or mortality, um, because we're not primarily funded based on, on value, value-based uh, models or, or performance, um, our executives here have limited economic incentives to adopt things that improve outcomes because if they, they've told me many times, hey, if we save money here, the government thinks we need less money next year. So we don't really have as much of an incentive to do things at lower costs and improve quality, which sounds crazy as a, as a consumer, as, as a citizen, as a patient, but is kind of the reality we're often dealing with when it comes to payment models. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy to me sometimes, but it's not, I think it's a bit, maybe a bit better in the U.S. or no. uh, many ways. It's, no? it's no better in the U.S. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I will say it's actually better at Jefferson, which is where mm -hmm. I work, which is my small neck uh, uh, of the world in that, you know, we try to be cost conscious and we try to deliver the best possible care to patients. And I don't believe in our heart of hearts there's a lot of people running around just trying to, you know, keep money in their budget for next year. Like, I think we reward when you cut money and, and I, you know, certainly make it a priority to make sure I'm making my budget and where I could save money, I'm saving money. And in return for that, I hope when I ask for money, people understand that I really need the money and I'm cost conscious. And, and that's what I find. I have been other places where people did exactly what you just said which is, oh my God, it's the end of the year, we better spend the 100,000 bucks or the million dollars that's left. That's insane. That is the most irresponsible thing ever. And so I'm just grateful I found a place that actually, you know, I'm able to show that I could be a good fiscal steward, that they could trust me. And then when we need the right thing for patients, we get it. And I don't have to worry about building up a war chest and hiding it under the table for mm -hmm. next year. Yeah. Totally makes sense. I, I, I am still just amazed at the fact that, you know, you started this whole um, digital health, health initiative like seven years ago, six years ago now, six, seven years ago. I, to me, that's still incredible because it was just so progressive for its time. I'm curious if you could give advice to any other, you know, digital leaders in healthcare today regarding adopting a telehealth strategy or a digital front door strategy, you know, what would your advice be? Uh, make a digital mRNA vaccine. I think that would be the best thing you could do. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think that my advice is, you know, and, and we got, again, we got lucky because we weren't doing this to scale up during COVID, but we were doing it to scale up when value-based care took mm -hmm. on 
you, you know, a little more in the US. But we, we actually almost scaled up too fast because you can't outpace the reimbursement mm -hmm. models too much. And so then we spent a lot of time and we still do talking about right sizing it, which is knowing you have it ready to scale up when you mm -hmm. need it to scale up, but not scaling up where you're going to lose your shirts, um, you, you know, beforehand. So I, I think my advice would be uh, build it so that you're ready to scale up. And we went for, you know, in, in many ways, the, you know, the premium model across the board. And so I think that each health system needs to figure out where do you need the premium model and where do you need a model that's just good enough at, at the time being. But it, it worked for us doing what we did. So I think if I went back and did it over, there'd be, there'd be a few things I would do different. Um, but I'm not sure they're helpful for, you know, another health system because, you know, you've seen one health system, you've seen one health system. Right. And, and Judd, as you know, obviously we're navigating new COVID variants um, and dealing with Omicron now. And I mean, even beyond that, um, in a post-pandemic um, world, hopefully we get there, um, you know, now that we've experienced, I guess, telemedicine changing over the past two years, increased adoption, maybe decreased adoption and bouncing back and forth. Um, what aspects of patient communication at this point do you think virtual has almost completely replaced? But what are the things that you think will you know, most likely go back to face-to-face long-term? So, so I think that, and you said this earlier on, I think, we're, we're never going to be all in person and we're never going to be all virtual again. And you know, it's going to be driven by the patient and people should stop guessing what the patients want, because there's an easy way to figure out what the patients want, just ask them. And, and so, you know, a couple examples, I got a dad that's 88, that's, you know, got a whole host of chronic medical problems. And you know what, he can't do a video visit on his own, but he can't drive either. So if my sister, who's the one who lives near him and is, you know, the primary caretaker, would she rather go to his place, put him on the iPad, or would she rather go to his place, pick him up, drive him half hour away, and drive them back. Right. So a doc may think, oh, this old guy, he can't do telemedicine, but that doesn't mean telemedicine is not the best thing for him and his caregiver mm -hmm. to make it happen. The, the other areas that we've seen that are unique is bad news. Every doctor thinks every patient wants to be sitting there holding their hand when they're getting bad news. You know what? Not every patient wants to do that. And, and my analogy that I often give is imagine you're in a minor fender bender car accident. In my world, you're shaking up for hours after that. And all you did was like bruise a bumper of a car that's now gonna be a pain to fix and you have no injury and you're still jittery. Now, thankfully it hasn't happened to me, but imagine being told you have cancer. And if you live 75 miles away, do you wanna drive in even with your spouse or significant other be told you have cancer so that the doctor could look you in the face and tell you this and then drive home and then tell all your family, or would you rather be on a group video where your family's wherever and you and your spouse, and if the kids want to be with you, they could find out the biopsy results at that time. And I'm sure there's patients that want to be there in person. And I'm sure there's patients that would prefer the couch with all their family back home. And, and so I, I think we need to do a better survey of what patient preferences are because you, you know, that's a really important conversation. The information is going to be transmitted. The next steps are going to be the same, but uh, you, you know, let patients have care the way they want. 
I really love that. I mean, um, one of the stories that we've had personally here is, you know, we would we used to sit down next to patients and, and watch how they'd interact with, um, you know, uh, digital platforms and see what they could actually access. And I remember like we used to sit down next to patients in their seventies or eighties and, you know, they may have an iPad, but then you realize quickly that they don't even know their app store passwords. Mm-hmm. So they need to use the web browser to interact right. with that application. And it's a light bulb moment about how does that patient need to be reached given their circumstances? And it isn't one size fits all. So I love the fact that you're absolutely right. I mean, and all, I mean, what came to mind when you're describing that, that scenario is like, what if I'm a patient, I'm on my own, I'm driving in, I'm getting told I have cancer. I have to drive myself back. Might be safety issues there if I'm thinking about right. encounter. It's wow. Right. Right. And you know, it's interesting. I got because my father who can use his iPad until he shuts it down and then he can't log back on to Wi-Fi because he doesn't even know his Wi-Fi account. <laughs> An ongoing issue we're really having. And, and my uncle, who just got discharged from the hospital, who owns neither a cell phone nor a computer. <laughs> but is heavily invested in the stock market, probably the only human being heavily invested in the stock market without a cell phone or a computer. But I get a phone call, he's just discharged Saturday. And I get a phone call, he lives 150 miles away from me. I get a phone call today from the home health nurse saying, yeah, you know, we wanna do med reconciliation. I'm like, I don't know what meds he's on. No one called to tell me he's not here. And that, you know, and he's not answering his phone cause it's from a number he doesn't recognize. Yes. And he only has an answering machine because my wife and I brought him one because he didn't want one or you could never reach the guy. Like people are just different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a different approach. Like they should have had somebody meet him first and she could have said, this is the number I'm going to call you from, answer it. Mm-hmm. And he would have. It's funny, so much of medicine has nothing to do with clinical medicine at all. Like we know all the right things to do. It's, it's the yeah. patient education, it's the communications, all the other things that... That were, <laughs> yeah, that, that's incredible. Super fascinating. I, I'm just short on time, Jed. So we're going to flip over to what we call the fast five lightning round. Basically five questions to get to know you a little bit better for our audience. They're pretty okay. quick. First question we have is what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? So, so I'm not a huge reader, but one of the books I read most recently that I love the style of was Michael Lewis's book on the pandemic. And I thought that was really well written and it it followed a different format than most books I've read in that each section highlighted a person and and how they were impacted and their role early on 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 the healthcare side of things. And and I actually found it a very enjoyable read and very Mm -hmm. enlightening to stuff as a guy heavily invested in the pandemic Mm -hmm. and what was going on in the background that I didn't know. No, that's awesome. Um, question two, uh, this is specifically for you, Eagles or Cowboys? Oh, there's no Cowboys anywhere. It's, it's the better question. See, this one you blew because you could have done Giants versus Eagles Fair. because I grew up in New York. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I recognize the accent. And I was probably a bigger Giants fan than Yankees fan. And when we moved to Philly 20 plus years ago, I've kept my Yankees allegiance. Sorry, Phillies. <laughs> and I switched to the Eagles. Wow even though I was a huge Giants fan, in part because, and this is, you know, a a rooting thing in our family, my son was friends with Andy Reid's son, who was coach of the Eagles. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, became big Eagles fans, and he got to go in the locker room and, you know, be at the sports complex. And now we're rooting for the Chiefs. So yesterday was a very good day. Yeah. Um, Best game of the day. (laughs) It's an unbelievable sports weekend this weekend. Oh, my God. 
Incredible. All right. Uh, question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Probably. Well, I don't know. I don't want to know if I want to know what people are thinking. Can, can I just opt with, I'm grateful for what I have right now? <laughs> we haven't wow. had that answer. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> you're the, like you're the, the first person who's, who's actually content with what they have. That, that's impressive. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? That others might find insane? Yeah. Um, the fact that the doctors make have, have very little say over your healthcare decisions mm -hmm. when they're important. And the fact that it is driven by economics of, of people who don't have any vested interest in your outcome. And so I'll elaborate for one sentence on that. Mm -hmm. Commercial payers, the average time a commercial payer has your policy, I believe is less than three years in the United States. Mm -hmm. So if you're a diabetic, they don't want to spend money on you in the next three years, whether or not you develop mm -hmm. renal failure or a stroke or retinopathy 30 years down the road, not their biggest priority. Uh, Our incentives are misaligned in healthcare and they are not what patients would want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's profound and, and accurate. Uh, question five, this is a pandemic lockdown related question. Uh, what is one hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? Oh, well, we talked about this before we were live on the air. It is tennis, tennis, and more tennis. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, as I was saying, Alan and Josh, before we got started, I, you know, back in the days when I was young and healthy and could run around, I, I played high school and college tennis and, you know, hacked around over the years and, and tried picking it up again recently. But my gift to myself now that we were never going on family vacations or in fact spending money on anything because we were locked down in the house was to take tennis lessons again so i i that that that's the answer to that one that's awesome but quick follow-up uh judd favorite tennis player of all time favorite tennis player of all time oh that's a that's a tough one so um oh i'm i'm uh I, I, and I, I can picture him, but I'm blanking on the last name, VJ. Uh, before your time, big, blonde, curly hair. Um, anyway, because I sat next to him at the U.S. Open. Hmm. And, and go ahead, Alan, Google him. Yeah, and and he sadly died of carbon monoxide poisoning a couple oh, wow. of years later on, oh. on, on Long Island. Um, but but you, back when I was young, growing up in New York, the U.S. Open you know, was there, still is there, but was in Forest Hills. And, and when you went and sat on the side courts, you could just be sitting next to the players or walking around with the players. And his sister was playing a match and he was, he was like 16 years old. And we sat next to him and he just chatted with us no the whole match. That's awesome. Are you, are you talking about Vijay uh, Amritraj? Yes. Amritraj? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I actually don't know him. Yeah, he was, you know, he was he probably creeped in the top 10 at some point, but was yeah. a, a, a super nice guy. Wow, that's incredible. And, and you, uh, Judd, we did speak before the, the recording started, but it sounds like you're playing like every day almost. Uh, no, not, not quite every no. day, but I'm, uh, if, if I get out two times a week is now my low, that used to be my high. Right. And, and periodically I could make four days a week without my body feeling like it's going to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> if, if two days were my low, I'd, I'd be pretty happy. I yeah. mean. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. 
Well, awesome. Uh, Jed, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You've shared a ton with us, uh, you know, about telehealth and digital front door and just your strategy and your thoughts on, on how we're progressing through COVID and, and even, you know, started before COVID and how health systems today can, can really move forward as we kind of go into this digital era uh, moving forward. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us today. All right. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. It was fun.